Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you are listening to No Sleep Till Celebrate, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. Okay, so we're going to do something a little bit different today, and I'm kind of excited about this. One of my best pals in the world, Kent Bailey, is here, and he is going to take me through a tutorial hip- <laughs> on hip-hop. <laughs> he grew up in Scarborough. Uh, and is a huge fan of hip hop. And so I always kind of wondered how you got into it. You know, because when I was a kid, the reason why I got into heavy metal was because I was a big Kiss fan and I was a comic book fan. And so the next logical progression was to get into bands, you know, like Motley Crue and Iron Maiden that had that kind of visual, almost fantastical comic book kind of element to them. So like, how did you get into hip hop? Well, it's sort of, a, I think the introduction is sort of, first of all, thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, it's a great time. This here. is this is. I think it's going to be fun. As you've alluded to, I'm sort of a middle-aged white dude who was at one point <laughs> a middle-class white dude growing up in a suburb of Toronto. So I'm not a rap uh, scholar or a rap historian. <laughs> know a little bit about it. Enjoyed it growing up. Yeah. No more than you. So there's something a there. A lot more than me. Um, how did I get into it? Well, going way back. Didn't grow up in a, in a house that was, I would call, super musical. Like, music wasn't a big part of the household. There wasn't music playing in the background. There wasn't, it wasn't a big thing. We weren't okay. a musical family. So, say, grade four, we used to do this neat little thing where everyone, every one of the students would come in and they would play a, a record of their favorite song. So, grade four, not coming from a musical household, I was a little stumped. So I knew this was coming and, of course, did nothing about it and left it and left it and left yeah. it. And then the night before, you know, post store being open that I can go and get something, I realized, oh, my God, I need I need a record yeah. that I can play tomorrow and grabbed one of my mom's records. And I honestly can't even it doesn't even matter what the record was. It was nothing that anyone of, you know, grade four age would want to listen to. And I put it on. And it was an absolute embarrassment. Like it, I was, it was, I don't know whether it was like 60s. It was absolute nonsense. So you actually brought this record? Yeah, because in. I hadn't watched I brought it and oh, I played no. it. And it was a lot of, and I remember at one point the teacher stopped the record and said like, is this a joke? Like, is this a joke? Did you bring this in? It's like, were you trying to be funny? I said, no, well, you know, and I was scrambling trying to make up an idea. Oh, wow. So it was, it was, it was embarrassing. Yeah. So that night I went home and I was upset and I and so I was right, we're gonna go to Wolco and we're gonna get something, and again not coming from a musical family, what do you pick? Yeah. So I you know I went to you know one of the KTEL collaborators. You remember KTEL? Yeah, of course. Yeah, sounds of the seventies. And 70s, I picked up like uh, Electric Avenue. It was, it was one of Eddie those, Grant. Yeah, Eddie Grant exactly. And one of those and I brought it in, played it the next day. And it was a wild success. So I got a I got a retry at this. So okay. I, because my first a, record was you get so a redo. bad. Yeah, and that was sort of where it started. And then from there, it morphed into and this is where it gets almost cringeworthy looking back on it. <laughs> the whitest kids ever having a break dance party oh, in the basement. God. Yeah, like exactly. And you didn't even see it. You didn't have to live. It was like. <laughs> The whitest kids with the, with absolutely not an ounce of rhythm between any of us. And I don't know right. whether we had a piece of cardboard or not, but let's just say we did. Okay. So we threw down the piece of cardboard in the basement and we yeah. and we would throw on a song like Rocket by Herbie Hancock. <laughs> and we would try to break dance. And again, like absolutely cringe worthy thinking about it. But that was where it started. Wow. And then from there, you know, growing up in Scarborough is the demographics were, it was a mixture of, of cultures and races and, and a lot of different musical 
influences and my friends that I hung out with listened to a whole bunch of different stuff. Mm-hmm. So you kind of just sort of contrary to the way you came to appreciate the music that you listened to, it's sort of you stumbled across it. Yeah. It wasn't on the radio. We weren't going to clubs. We It was just sort of what did your friends listen to? What kind of tapes were they passing around? Mm-hmm. What influenced them? So you sort of stumble across it. Yeah. And that and but that was where it started, cringeworthy and all, with wow. a you know, with a piece of cardboard and the worst dancers in the world trying to break dance. See, I, I've known you for twenty years now. And I didn't know that about you. That is crazy. That's how it started. So that would have been oh, like grade four, grade five, so we're looking, you know, ten years old, nine yeah. years old, ten years old, that sort of went on. Yep. And then you push forward into sort of senior public school where you're 12 and 13. So now we're looking, I'm going to give away my, my middle class age here. Now you're looking at around 12 or 13 years old and you're looking around 1986. And yep. 1986 is not obviously the beginning of hip hop, but it's sort of right smack in the middle. And this era of hip hop for me from about 1986 through to about 1992-3-4 in that range, you're going to find that most of the songs that that I'm, you know, that I brought today are going to slide right into that golden era of hip hop. Okay. And that was right when I started sort of, you know, you get into those years where you really start listening to music. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where it slotted in, and so that's where you're going to see ten down through one. That's where you're going to see. Okay, so before you jump into it, I'm going to give you my impressions as a small town kid from 1986. So, first of all, I learned all this stuff after the fact. I learned about Grandmaster Flash and you know all those all those bands, old school hip hop. Yeah, like much later on, they were not on the radar at all. First guy who popped up on the radar for me was a guy named Cool Modi, Wild Wild West. Mm -hmm. I love that song. Again, one of the old school. Yeah. So was he like was he credible? Yes, absolutely credible. Yeah. So that era would have been would have been a look back for me completely. Like that's looking back and, and saying, you know, where did this music that started in say 85, 86, where did this come from? And it's guys that you've mentioned, Grandmaster Flash, Kumo D, there's there's who else? God, there's so many names. But like this this is where this was pioneered. Going back to I think Cool Herc, who Who's who was that? He was a guy out of out of South Bronx who, and again, I'm you know not a rap historian. This is just you know this is what I read. Yeah, of course. Who was the first to pioneer sort of the breaks idea, where you take the breaks, the percussion section of a song, yeah. isolating the break and extending it, and you take just the percussion yep. and you stretch it out into like an endless loop of break. Hence, break dancing. I mean, and again, that's a look back for me because I started into this in what I consider to be the sweet spot yeah. around 85, 86. But all that happened before and all that set the stage for everything okay. going forward. When did Cool Modi hit the scene? I want to say it was like 86. Yeah, I would say he was on the scene earlier than that. I think he was sort of post Grandmaster Flash for sure. Mm-hmm. Probably more towards the cusp of the transition to new school hip hop. Okay, yeah. Not a guy that I listened to, but definitely a guy that I had heard of. Yeah. You know, I was a metal kid, obviously, and fully focused on that. But I kind of always had, like, one eye on stuff that was interesting to me, you know. And he was definitely one of the guys that was interesting to me, for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, cheesy or not cheesy. No, yeah. Metal was completely cheesy anyway. But, yeah, so Cool Modi always kind of sticks it in my mind, in my limited understanding of of (laughs) (laughs) hip-hop Okay, so... uh, can I tell a story before we get started about Kish? 
I believe you can. It's your show. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> I just love this story. This is so great. Um, okay, again, this is 80, maybe maybe 86. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I was growing up in, you know, close to Sudbury, which is four hours north of Toronto, which, like, there's nothing going on there. And so everything that you kind of understand is through the TV and you watch music, and, and that's how you get all your information. Pre-internet. So this guy, Kish has this song called I Rhyme the World in 80 Days, I believe it was called. So anyway, I found out that he was from Toronto. Kish did not do anything after that. And then you and I met in like the late 90s. And I used to joke that, you know, you reminded me of Kish, which was completely stupid and, you know, immature. Um, And I was just winding you up, basically. When we used to go to bars, and this is 15 years removed, right? So I would say, because Kish wasn't popular. No. But he not. Was but the funny thing is that you, when I talked to you about Kish, you knew Kish. You used to go to the same parties Kish went to. Well, what, yeah, one party, but yeah. But he wasn't like he wasn't that popular, but just okay. not popular enough to suit your exactly. needs. Exactly. So, so, but this is the funny part because it's it's just stupid. It's stupid fun. So we would go to bars, and I would say to women, "Do you remember?" Uh, Kish, and they would say, "I can't. Yeah, I do." And I would say, "See that guy over there? That's Kish." And they would look at you and kind of squint and like tilt their heads and say, is it? I think it is. <laughs> They're like everybody else. They had no idea what Kish looked like. They, they maybe knew the name. They're like, oh, God, maybe it is. I don't that know. was the beauty of it because they knew the name, but it could have been like, you don't look like Kish at all. No. Right? But the <laughs> I don't know. I just got such a huge charge out of that. We were drinking. And yeah, no, I enjoyed it. was all just like stupid frat boy <laughs> stuff. Anyway. And the fact that you knew Kish, which is another amusing, is because I don't, I'm going to, I'm going to say this in jest, but you probably know six rappers, six rappers. And somehow yeah. it's like Cardinal Official. <laughs> I just like to say six, Cardinal six Official. Six rappers. And somehow, somehow Cardinal Official makes your list of six rappers that you know. <laughs> And I have no idea why. And it's amused me from the day that you that you said Cart and I was like, who? Cardinal Official. Guy from Sudbury knows again, I'm gonna say six rappers for lack of <laughs> totally. Six rappers. And that's a stretch. But somehow Cardinal Official is one of them. The guy's a legend. <laughs> Clearly he's a legend because you know him. Yeah. Him, Lucas, uh, Kish, Cool Modi, uh, Ice T, and uh, Young MC. All right, so you got some. You got some. Young MC is a weird one to throw in there after Ice T and and Cool Modi, but and then Kish and and, and yeah. who was the other guy? Not Young MC, but the other guy. Light your backbone slide. Who's that? We'll guy? talk about him maybe. All right, maybe. Ah, good. Okay, I've I've blathered on too long. Let's get into your list here. All right, so can I kick it? Absolutely, you can. Take it away. We are off to a poor, poor start. Why? When I say. Can I kick it? Yeah. You're supposed to say, yes, you can. And we'll talk about why later. So. <laughs> can I kick can it? Can I kick it? Yes, you can. Perfect. All right. So, number 10. Okay. I brought 10 songs, oh, even so, though you said 8 to 10. Okay, so, and we're going to go from 10 we're to 1. We're going to go from 10 to 1. Love it. All right. And these are, and can I say that this was, this was hard. This yeah. was harder than I thought it was going to be. Yes. And it wasn't hard to select the songs. It was hard to get a top 10. Yeah. But fun. And I learned a lot. But see, that's the thing. This is fun. To do this stuff is fun. And you know the whole point of the show is an extension of, of All My Favorite People Are Broken. It's an opportunity for people to talk about the music that that makes them feel something, right? That makes their skin vibrate. Yeah. And it's fun to go through those songs. You could spend weeks, months doing this. Totally agree. Number 10. There's going to be one, and I'm going to spoil it. There's okay. going to be one white rapper 
in my top 10. Other than you. We, other than you, of course. <laughs> okay. And in this case, it's a white group. Okay. And they're slotted at number 10, not because they're not awesome, but just because they weren't necessarily my favorite of all time. Okay. 1986, off the License to Ill album. <laughs> the Beasties. Beasties, of course. Nice. And the song is No Sleep Till Brooklyn. Very good. Um, which, and this is sort of a, a more down your road, I believe that the title of the song was a play on a motorhead either song or album. Yeah. No Sleep Till Hammersmith or exactly something. Exactly like right. That. People always ask me. No Sleep Till Sudbury is a ripoff of, or it's inspired by, one or the other. Never even crossed my mind. Stupid. Perfect segue. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's not It's not Brooklyn. It's actually Hammersmith. It's the Motorhead record. That's where I got it from. Hmm. Yeah. So there you go. Know nothing about Motorhead. We're not here to talk about Motorhead That's anyway. That's right. Why did I like this song? Because it's obviously like a rock song in the yeah. background. I don't think it's unique. I mean, there are other groups that did this i mean um walk this way is an obvious one yes so it's not it's not unique but i wouldn't say that the 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 use of rock in the background was common necessarily no it was Um, actually quite uncommon right so to hear this beasties tune with a pretty good rock track in the background Mm -hmm. and then the beasties just doing their thing over top of it one of my favorite songs off that album i probably could have gone with fight for your right because you know growing up that was the track off that album and the video i don't know if you've seen the video it's kind of a kind of like taking a stab at everything that's near and dear to your heart and do you know go on and then now i'm probably going to say exactly what you were just about to say was who played the lead guitar carrie king did right yeah yeah and the reason why they did that was because uh, Slayer was on the same record label. Def Jam. Def Jam. Ah, I see. Love it. Um, yeah, and so they were label mates. So the Beasties, as I understand it, approached Slayer and said, do you want to do something radical? Mm. And uh, and they did. Yeah. Run DMC was sort of of the similar era, sort of that 86 when I said, like, we're all very, very early started, just started for yes. me. And it was Beasties and it was Run DMC. And Run DMC have a catalog of great, great tracks that are not on here. And again, not to diminish, I could have, you know, I agonized over some of these, (laughs) what to put in and what to, you know, and and they didn't make the list. But again, um, Walk This Way. And you watch the, you know, you watch the the interviews with Run DMC where they talk about their approach to to putting that whole thing together. And they were like, there's no way I'm doing it. Who? Steven? No, no. Yeah. And then when they did it, it was like, whoa. Yeah. But you know, what's really cool about that is that you can, now you can even, you can see the commonality between the musical genres, right? Because Walk This Way is kind of, there's that almost shuffle groove and you can see how those two things work. It was a bold move to do because a lot of people said that's not going to work, but it clearly does work. And I, was it Steven Tyler who was behind that? I think Joe Perry opposed it and said, I don't want to do this. I'm not, yeah, I don't one know. Of the, one of the Aerosmith guys said no. But I know DMC certainly from Run DMC was like, uh-uh, yeah. there's no way. But it's just got that groove. Both songs had that vibe. And I think it was Tyler who said, you can put these things together. Because the same common ingredients, the same elements exist in both. And it was a brilliant idea. And you know, later on, the other famous one that sticks out in my mind is Public Enemy with Anthrax, Bring mm-hmm. the Noise. Mm-hmm. You know, people say you can't mix, you know, thrash metal with hip hop. And clearly you can. With hip hop of this era is that there were so many different sounds. It was like you could do almost whatever you wanted 
And you'll see that through, you know, nine through one, when I say to you, every time you put a tape in the cassette deck, it's something different. Yep. It's something new. Yeah. And that was 1986 through 1992. You know, it was so exciting for that reason, because you did not know what was coming next. Yep. Great point. So let's go to number nine. All right. Number nine. So we had the, we had the white rappers. Yep. Beasties. We need a Canadian rapper and you cannot say so Cardinal Fischiao oh. because it's not Cardinal Fischiao. <laughs> okay. So I think that basically you don't, you don't, because he's the only Canadian you know. So That's then right. it's over. You don't know who this is. What about Actually, you player? do though. You, you do because you already said his name. Uh, 1989 from the album Symphony in Effect. Ah. Maestro Fresh West. Oh, let your background. But see, I didn't say his name. I actually said Young MC. I thought you said Maestro Fresh. No, Maestro I said who who did Let Your Backbone Slide. Oh, it was I, Let Your Backbone Slide. Yeah, I, did, I didn't know his name. Maestro Fresh was. <laughs> so you didn't know. So I was right. <laughs> so this song, and I think this this song is one of those songs that it has so much standing in my mind because of the memories. Because this guy, Wesley Williams, was a was a local dude. Like he, okay. I think he grew up in New York or New York, North York. Uh, eventually he was in high school in Scarborough, not yep. too far from where I went to high school. This guy was a local phenomenon. I'm going to throw out a stat that I think is accurate, but I can't back it up. I believe that this track was one of the, if not the best Canadian hip hop selling tracks of all time. I, I you know, I believe that because I remember how popular it was. It was huge. Was he the same, were you guys the same age approximately? It would have to be close. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm not sure when he was born, but I'm going to say he was around the same. He might have been around our age. Maybe he might have been a little bit older than me, a couple years older than me. Yeah. But this song, it it was just everybody knew it. He was local. We didn't go to clubs. I mean, it was still was still kind of young. I would have been grade nine, grade ten. So still kind of kind of young to be going to any clubs. And there frankly weren't many clubs that were playing this type of music that I would have known about. Yeah. So it was more, you know, what do you, what do you hear from your friends? As I said to you earlier, and then what do you, what, what plays at the dances? Yes. So high school dance, they're always a big deal. And you got the smoke machine going and the strobe light ticking yeah. and all the people with rhythm are out on the dance floor yeah. and all the rest of the people like me are, you Standing know, holding the walls the wall. of the gym up. <laughs> and then the intro to this song comes on and it's that, and if you know the song, it's that this is a throwdown, That's right. a showdown. And that whole play, it would just go nuts. Oh, really? Absolutely nuts. And then that, you know, the line, okay, party people in the house. Yeah. And that tick, tick, tick. And then and remember that, okay, party people in the house, because we're going to come back to that okay. shortly. This is like and a- you hear that tick, 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 tick. And then one, two, three, and then that beat. And I wish I had something hard to bang on, and I'd probably screwed it up anyway. But that this beat from just that like- song, that boom, you got it. That's exactly it. Yeah. And... This jam is amplified and then just boom, and the place would go nuts. For me, this is about the memories of that just being like people throw around the you know the word anthem and it's a it's a rock anthem or it's a rap anthem. Mm. For for my generation at that point, this was an anthem. And I don't know whether it was because he was Canadian or whether it was because he was local, or whether maybe it's just because the song was just that damn good. That's what I think, actually. I think it was. I think it was a very clever. The, the lyrics were super clever. You know, he's a talented guy. Yeah. I don't think it had a lot to do with the fact that he was Canadian. I think he was just he was he was gifted and he did a yeah. great job. I don't know how big he made it outside of Canada, though. I don't think he made it that big. I don't think he did either, actually. Which is which is a shame because again, I think notwithstanding all the stuff about being local and what we just talked about, mm-hmm. the song's good. It was good. So that comes in at number nine. Cool. Um, number eight. Number and eight. This is an interesting one. 
Because this guy was born in England, moved to the U.S. at a young age. Okay. Wears an eye patch. Looks like a pirate. <laughs> 1991, off the album The Ruler's Back. Okay. Slick Rick. Slick Rick. And the song Rick. is... Now, did Slick Rick need the eye patch? Yes. And the story behind this was that apparently as an infant, he got like a shard of glass in his eye. Oof. So yeah, it wasn't just, I'm a pirate and this is my shtick. He, yeah, he, there was... Oh, yeah. God. The song oh. is I Shouldn't Have Done It, which is probably for anyone who knows Slick Rick is probably a weird one because his album, his 1988 album, which and I, I have to look at the name of this because it's, it's The Great Adventures of Slick Rick okay. that had two really, really good songs right. that could have made my list. Okay. They were very popular. Children's Story and Mona Lisa. Great. What? Great, great song. Would I know these if you played them for me? I maybe doubt it. Okay. If you didn't know Maestro Fresh West, I don't think you're going to know. Not no, I, I, saying I, this I knew the a, song. I didn't know his name. You know nothing. <laughs> Slick Rick is a neat guy. He's a storyteller. So I shouldn't have done it. Was Again, it's probably a weird one for most people. But it's a story, like they all are, with his, his unique accent and his unique delivery and his eye patch and his whole persona and his and the way that he just seems to float through songs yeah i shouldn't have done it as a story about him apparently being ugly and dating a really beautiful girl okay and he could never understand why she would want to date him mm -hmm. so he had these crazy jealousies about her cheating on him and and you know it would lead to a lot of arguments and they would fight a lot so one night they fought about you know this that and the other thing because he was jealous and he went out to the bar and he met some woman and he cheated uh. on his beautiful girlfriend and he felt bad about it and he came home and and but she didn't know she never found out and things were great so he proposed to her they got engaged and then she found out mm. and he came home one night and she killed herself and left him a note she overdosed on drugs oh yeah my God. you got a, you got the exact look on your face that I, you should I just have did like the mr bill face like, yeah oh. like this is like this is a serious like this is a crazy story and this this song was one of my favorites again 1991 now he had done that 88 album another interesting fact and getting back to the samples and, and okay. this was something that i had learned later that he had put out a song in 1985 the song was called lottie dottie okay and lottie dottie is i believe sampled over 800 different times really? which makes slick rick and this is a stat that i think is accurate the most sampled hip-hop artist ever no way Good start. Most of which was from this one song, Lottie Dottie. Wow. So going back to what we talked about, Let Your Backbone Slide by Maestro Fresh West, that mm -hmm. okay party people, I don't know yeah. if you're familiar with that's Slick Rick. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, wow. You know, you know the Biggie song, Biggie, 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 Can't You See? Sometimes your words just hit. Dude, as if I would know that. <laughs> oh, that is weak. Everybody knows that. <laughs> I don't know that. Ugh. I'm well, then my story is, well, for anyone listening who probably <laughs> knows that, that whole line, that whole section from that Notorious B.I.G. song yeah. is sampled right out of Lottie Dottie. It was sampled, that song was sampled, or Slick Rick was sampled by Beyonce, Mariah Carey, Mary J. Blige, like wow. you name it. Really? Yeah. So there's a fun fact about Slick Rick. So he came in at number eight. Now we're getting into... So we've had the we've had the white rappers, we've had the Canadian rapper. Now we got I, I felt that I needed to put at least one female rapper in. Good here. for you. And for me, there is there was only one choice. Salt and Peppa. Incorrect. <laughs> That's the only one I know. <laughs> 
So this is a little a little later, um, sort of post when my when the, where the most of my songs slot in year was 1996 from I think it was her fifth album, Bad yeah. as I Want to Be. Right. MC Light. MC Light. Okay. Mm-hmm. Song Cold Rocket Party. There were two versions of this song. Okay. There was a an album version and a single version. Oh, okay. The album version, which you don't often hear, sampled a completely different song. A great song by a great duo um, called Audio 2, which almost made my list but didn't. But it's an amazing, very influential song called Top Billing. That was the original album version of that song. Then there was the single version, Mm -hmm. which was produced by Puff Daddy. But that song sampled that Diana Ross song, which I loved. I loved. Yeah. And it had, again, one of my favorite artists, but Missy Elliott, who's another female rapper. Yeah. Who was on that as well, who was not on the original. But that's an example of a song. I mean, MC Light delivers consistently on all of her stuff through the years. Amazing. The best, in my mind anyway, hands down, the best female rapper. Wow. MC Light. Um, But that song, I loved that song because I loved that sample. Okay. It was great. Hmm. And that's why she's uh, she's in at number seven with Cold Rock Party. So you favored that one over the other one? I did only because of the sample. Hmm. I love that that audio two song. Would that not make it a different song though? It, it if you listen to them both, mm-hmm. they are very different. Yeah, they would be right. But the lyrics are the same. Okay, I've never heard of anybody doing that before because usually the strength of the song relies on the sample. See, that's a very interesting consideration right there because for me, looking from the outside in, I would recognize Diana Ross's sample. And that would be my kind of primary focus on that song. It wouldn't be for you, maybe. Or it would be in another way. Right? In this case, it actually was. Yeah. So this is, again, I mean, this is, the, this is the beauty of this program is, is the fact that everybody looks at music and, and hears music and experiences music so differently. And I love hearing people's perspectives. Yeah. But in a lot of cases, the sample was the key. Uh, and these guys, as I, as I said to you earlier, these guys and gals were sampling everything. Yeah. That one James Brown song, I think it's called Funky Drummer. Yeah. Everybody in the early era of hip hop, everyone was sampling from that one song. Yeah. And that that Funky Drummer song, I think, was like the fourth or the third most sampled song of all time. Yeah. And it's mostly hip hop because these guys were all taking the breaks and the beats from that song. So going back to the Maestro song, that's yeah. your backbone slide that we talked about earlier, and you tapped out that beat, and I said that beat was was a crazy lead in, and everyone loved the lead into that song. Well, that's the funky drummer. It's prevalent throughout. It crosses genres. Everybody uses that beat. You think yeah. about the number of songs that use that beat that, that, that come to mind, it's crazy. That beat is almost like a song in itself because it's so familiar. It so is. you think about, like, for the first song that comes to mind for me is uh, Shadrach by Beastie Boys. Yep. Right? Um, LL Cool J, Mama Said Knock You Out. Yes. Same thing. Yep. Uh, George Michael actually used mm-hmm. that in mm-hmm. Freedom 90, right? He did. He did. In fact, he used it twice. And this is, cro- as I said, this is crossing genres. Right, you right. listen to these songs. He used it twice right. on the same album because he used it on Waiting for That Day. Off the same album. Oh, really? You listen to those songs, it is the same. Yeah. Like beat. It's... Crossing genres again, Sinead O'Connor used it in I'm Stretched oh, on Your Grave. Really? Yeah, listen to that song. Same beat. <laughs> Alanis Morissette used it, Jagged Little Pill. 
On what song? song Head Over Feet. Uh, oh, beat. yeah. Same beat. Uh, yeah. Everybody used it over it's her, absolutely. and over and over again. Kid Rock, I guarantee, has used that. Did he really? Well, he has for sure. There's no question. All right. So where are we at? We're number six now. Number six, 1988. And this song came onto my list because it was an absolute blow up for me like like a slap in the face like a whoa moment for me 1988 okay again go back to growing up in scarborough and scarborough had a reputation of being sort of a rough suburb of toronto yeah um and there was you know it was a fair amount of crime and but i mean i was a middle class white dude lived in a nice area not street not tough but growing up in scarborough you sort of had this sense of entitlement to the belief that you were street you were hard you were a badass it wasn't at all okay so with that in mind 1988 rolls around straight out of compton and wow so that was a game changer huge yeah and these guys were i mean you widely considered or often considered to be sort of the pioneers of gangster rap and i think you know if you're iced tea or your schoolie d you might have some 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 arguments to make about who, in fact, where did gangster rap start? Yeah. But I think in terms of gangster rap becoming mainstream, mm-hmm. I don't think there's much of an argument. But also just ratcheted up in terms of intensity. Oh, right? did so it Ice-T, my understanding is Ice-T, I remember Colors, Colors mm-hmm. soundtrack. So that was like late 80s, early 90s, whatever. Um, and it was, I mean, it was Ice-T's. It wasn't mm-hmm. like Let Your Backbone Slide. Right, no, yeah, but absolutely. it was it, it definitely was not straight out of Compton. No, those guys took it to a way new level. He did a song in '86 called Six in the Morning." Yeah, which is widely considered to be a very early gangster rap song. You can argue back and forth whether it's sort of set the stage for N.W.A. Okay. or not. Yep. But again, when when this song came out, it was like a punch in the face. Okay. You know, the song starts and it's you're about to witness the strength of street knowledge. And you're like, I remember the first time I heard this song, I'm sitting there going, and then the beat kicks in. Yeah. And then it's, and there's Ice Cube, like right in your face. Yeah. Hammering it. And and it, and it goes on. And you know, Ren comes in and, and he's hitting it pretty hard too. And then there's that break. Yeah. And for me, because this guy was my favorite of, of the group, there's that break, the percussion break, very short. Yeah. And then boom, it's easy. Yeah. And he, and he says, uh, straight out of Compton, is a brother that'll smother your mother and make your sister think I love her. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, what? What are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm, here I am. I'm in Scarborough. Like, I'm, I'm badass, right? I'm just, this guy's going to smother my mother and then somehow convince my sister. These guys rapped about taking sawed-off shotguns yeah. and killing people. Yeah. And doing drive-bys and all sorts of things with women. And, yeah. you know, and this was crazy. Exactly. This yeah. was, can they even say this? Can they even, like. Yeah. And I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember when this came out, you know, it touched me outside the genre. I remember thinking, why wow, these guys are making huge waves. Like, this yeah. is. And they this did. Is, uh, this is revolutionary for sure. And it was the start of, of probably many white dudes just like me saying, wow. So this is this is the new this is gangster rap that started sort of late '80s and pushed right through to when it sort of started to fade out a little bit, notwithstanding the East Coast West Coast stuff, sort of early '90s. Mm-hmm. But this is where it began, and I remember, as I said to you, I remember the first time I put this song on, it was like, whoa. Yeah. Number five. 
going back to the point that I've made a couple of times about every time you put the cassette in the deck, there's a new style, a new sound. You never know what you're getting. Yep. So this is 1993 okay. off the album Enter the Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers, Wu-Tang Clan. Wu-Tang Clan. Yes, sir. And the song is, and I agonized over this one, Okay. Cream. Nice. Cash rules everything around me. Oh, is that what? That's, that's the acronym. Okay. Hmm. It could have been any of the songs because this, and I'm not just saying this because this is sort of the, the widely held view of this album. It was incredible. Yeah. Like you had, I don't even know how many there were. There was what? RZA, Jizza, Old DB, Method Man, Raekwon, Ghostface Killer, Inspector. Ghostface Killer. I'm missing two or three more. Talk about a list of all-stars. And every single one of these guys could deliver. The name of the group came from an old martial arts film called Shaolin and the Wu-Tang or Shaolin versus the Wu-Tang or something like that. And it was Shaolin was Kung Fu and Wu-Tang was sword fighting. The entire album, and if you listen to it, it's amazing. It's just littered with samples from old martial arts films. Really? And from what I understand, recorded with, you know, not the best of equipment. So it was, and you could hear it. It was gritty. Like it was just old school. It wasn't, not that it wasn't polished, but it wasn't polished. It wasn't, Like some of the other productions, it was just, lo-fi. everything was different. And you had these, you know, these weird martial arts things. You're like, what is going on here? (laughs) But they were all so good. Yeah. They could all rap. The beats were crazy, but it was so different than what you heard. I do know, I don't know a lot about Wu-Tang Clan, but I do know they always brought a little bit more to the table when you consider, you know, if they if they are in fact hip-hop. I mean, there was always an, an interesting melody. There was always a twist. I like Wu-Tang Clan, um, but that's why, because you never knew, you know, what was going to come. There was, like I said, there was always, a, you know, maybe somebody's playing like a trumpet or maybe there's a like a funky kind of keyboard riff. Yeah. Like it was always, it was always a little bit different. Yeah, fact that they were, however many there were, eight guys who, were all good in their own right but who all sounded slightly different who could all collaborate not necessarily all on the same track but on the same album and it was just it was um, just a work of art from start to finish so they were at number five now we're starting to get into some of the tunes that are just oh like when i think back over the years and just man so that's number what four. i'm looking for let's hear it number four we're yeah. going back to 1988 again right in that still in that sweet spot album and Song title are exactly the same. Strictly Business, EPMD. Nice. Uh, so we got Eric Sermon and Parrish Smith. Uh, and I still don't know. There were two possible ways that the acronym EPMD was formed. And it was either Eric and Parrish making dollars. Okay. Or Eric and Parrish the microphone doctor. I'm not sure which one's which. But okay. either way, EPMD. Okay. Yeah. Um, that era, 88, you're talking at exactly the same time as NWA. You're talking about the same time as other bands that maybe we'll talk about in a couple of songs. Okay. That were either hardcore or if you want to, you know, if you want to put NWA into their own category, whether it's gangster rap or ultra hardcore or whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. This stuff was loud. This stuff was aggressive. This stuff was in your face. And then here comes EPMD. So you pull out NWA and you're all, you know, pumped up. And then EPMD goes in and it's very smooth. Okay. And they, they sample different types of songs, a lot of funk, completely different than what was NWA right. at the time. They sample... A cool in the gang song called Jungle Boogie. Really? In this song, yeah. And it's great. It's just smooth. It's different. It's excellent. Awesome. 
So we're down to the top three. Ooh. Um, what do we got? Not their first album. Maybe not even their best album. 1993, off the album Midnight Marauders. Okay. Tribe Called Quest. Ah, nice. I know a little bit about Tribe. Everyone does, because they are just that good. See, again, I would say, in my limited understanding, I would say that they remind me very much of Wu-Tang Clan in the sense that they bring that extra dimension of musicality. They do, and in a completely different way. They, in a completely different way. Wu-Tang was... Let me put it this way. Let me, let me tell you what the song is. I don't think I actually said what the song was. Mm. Uh, 1993 Midnight Marauders Award Tour. Word tour. Okay. Yeah. These guys were sort of, they were considered, I think what, what they were considered at the time was sort of alternative hip hop, if there's okay. there such a thing. I think that's what it was referred to. These guys started getting into the scene right around the same time as, as NWA, and they sort of competed for that, that space with gangster rap and hardcore hip hop. And it, it wasn't until later, you know, early 90s, where alternative hip hop started to become more mainstream. So you had, you had, you know, Q-Tip and Five Dog from, from Triquel Quest. You had De La Soul. Going further out, you would have had, well, not that much further, actually, Far Side from, from California, Arrested Development. They were all that sort of same, very um, much less edgy, much more poetic. I chose Award Tour because it, it really was my favorite. As I said, much less edgy. Not a lot of swearing, which is obviously a big <laughs> step away from yeah. the NWAs of the world, or even worse, the two live crews of the world. Yeah. yeah so the alternative hip hop um, between the 1991 Low End Theory and, and the 1993 Midnight Marauders, they were great. So top two. What do you got? Hit me, man. From Queens, New York, Nasty Nas or Nas. In terms of just pure rap talent, amazing. Absolutely really? amazing. And the song, I keep forgetting to say the song. I keep talking about the artist. <laughs> the song, um, well, it was originally off of, it was a single off of a soundtrack to an Oliver Stone movie called Zebrahead. Okay. Uh, and ultimately became a single from his 1994 debut album, Illmatic. And the song is Halftime. Again, you grow up in, in you don't, unless you're growing up in the Bronx, you don't, you're just, you, you get what's fed to you. Whether yeah, it's exactly. through a tape that you heard, whether it's through hanging out with a buddy and hearing tunes on the radio, you get what's fed to you. So in, in you know, in 1996, you heard If I Ruled the World, and you heard Nas, and you're like, oh man, is he ever smooth. Yeah. And he just rips through it, verse after verse after verse. And then you say, okay, well, this wasn't his first album? I never, where was I two years ago? I never heard about this guy. Illmatic. Yeah. Apparently, if you lived in in, in New York and or in Bronx, and specifically in the Bronx, was this this album was hyped. He had done some stuff with a bunch of different people before, and, and everyone said that this guy is a talent. This mm -hmm. guy can rap. So Illmatic was was hyped and hyped and hyped, and I don't think it actually did as well commercially as as it was written did two years later. Okay. But Halftime came off this album. It wasn't that the beat was special or that any of the background stuff was special. It's just that Nas is special. His delivery, perfect, amazing. The other song that I was going to put on here and didn't and chose halftime over it was New York State of Mind, which is another, an I know you're cringing. I knew I'm you were hissing. Going. Yes. Ugh. You have to I listen to it. Really hoping. I'm not even going to say the person's name. Yeah, I know. But he's not. <laughs> Good. It's amazing. It's got this weird piano background to it. And apparently when he recorded it, he did the entire song without stopping. 
And the guy, I can't remember who, I wish I my knowledge was better, but the, whoever it was that produced it said that he was literally in awe hmm. at the skill of Nas, as a, just as a pure rapper. Really? So there you go. Nas hmm. Halftime. Cool. Number two. So this is it, man. Last one, number one. Number What have you got? We are 1990, out of Long Island, mm-hmm. off the album called Fear of a Black Planet. <laughs> Public Enemy. Yes. Of course. What's the and track? And the song, Welcome to the Terror Dome. Nice. That's great. Let me start Let me start with this. Chuck D for me is, and I, and I, I, I thought about this a lot because I, I expected that you might ask me this. And I'm gonna, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it before you, you ask me. Who's your, who's your best rapper of all time? Mm-hmm. Is it Chuck Noss D? Nas is very good. Chuck yeah. D wins. I would say Chuck D by miles and miles and miles. Chuck D is absolutely incredible and this song welcome to the terror dome for me is the best representation of what public enemy is all about now you could make an argument maybe and i actually would have a hard time countering it that maybe fight the power off this album Mm -hmm. could be seen as the best representation of what chuck d and public enemy are all about yeah but i really like this song And, and for me it's chuck d at his absolute finest he is so strong, so powerful, so aggressive. The beats are always good. The samples are always crazy. Yeah. He's political. He's angry. He has a message. He's anti-racism. He's, he's everything that a middle-class white kid growing up in Scarborough would imagine the South Bronx would be in that era. Yeah. If that makes any sense to you. Whatsoever. It makes perfect sense. And I think it's very well said. I, I, you know, knowing what I know about Chuck D again, he, he just brings an intensity oh. that, that I, I don't think even, you know, you're talking about NWA that it's a different kind of intensity, but Chuck D just brings this intensity that nobody yeah. else can. You know, I mean, yep. I've always kind of wondered about Flavor Flav and and what the, the it's a, such such a strange duality between those two guys, and I can never figure out the pairing. But Chuck D, man, yep. intensity unmatched. You listen to some of the some of the the things that he references in this song. You know, first, nothing's worse than the mother's pain of a son slain in Bensonhurst, and at the time, I had no idea what that meant. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what it meant. I had to go back. I had to go and look it up years later, and it didn't matter at the time what it meant. All you knew was. Chuck was punching you in the face with something that meant something to him, meant something to the community, not even a community that you were part of, but meant something to a community. It's yeah. a story about, I don't know if you know the story. No, it's I don't. It's a story about, a, about three, three young black kids that were walking through an Italian neighborhood in New York that got set upon by a gang of, of white dudes. I don't know if it was 10 or 20, Italian or white or whatever. They were white. Okay. And their beef was that they felt that one of the white girls in the neighborhood was having a relationship with one of the black kids. Right. And they beat these three boys mm. and one of them had a gun and they shot this kid and they killed him. Wow. So that's what that, and, and Chuck D, so Chuck D takes that and puts it in a song and for people living there, that's strong. That's a strong, and Chuck D was always like that. For me, this song, and again, you could maybe make the argument that Fight the Power is sort of the anthem for, you know, activism or, you know, a political statement. But mm-hmm. for me, this song here, as I said, and I won't repeat myself, is Chuck D and Public Enemy at its finest. And then you throw Flavor Flav in there, who just comes in with these interludes of weird <laughs> things. And you never, so you listen to Chuck D slamming in the face for, you know, a minute or so. You're like, what is, and Flavor Flav shows up with some weird, what is this all about? Yeah. And that's what made them so great. Chuck D, my mind, best rapper of all time, number one. 
Well done. I've learned a couple of things today. Well, good. I'm glad. Seriously. And, and I learned a few things doing this. And uh, it was, as I said to you, it was, I didn't expect it to be easy, but it was hard. Yeah. There's so many more songs that I could have put on here for a variety of different well, reasons. You know, um, you, you can be a recurring guest. You can come back. We'll do this again. I'd love to. I yeah. appreciate the invite. Absolutely. Anytime. Anytime, my man. Super. Well done. Thanks. Way to go. This has been No Sleep Till Subbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Kent Bailey. Until next time. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Subbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.